Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled No Other Name and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 7th, 2006. In our politically correct culture, Few opinions generate more hostility than ones like Peter's proclamation from the lectionary this week. We read in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter's declaration, of course, echoes the very words of Jesus in John chapter 14 verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These uncompromising words not only provoke controversy, they raise an honest question. In his World Christian Encyclopedia, David Barrett identifies 10,000 distinct religions, 150 of which have a million or more followers. Is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is the only way and that, and that the other 9,999 religions are false? Nearly 500 years ago, the French jurist Jean Baudin imagined a conversation about this question in his book, Colloquium of the Seven About Secrets of the Sublime. Quote, Who can doubt that the Christian religion is the true religion, or rather, the only religion? asked the Christian to which the re unbeliever responded, almost the whole world. If almost the whole world doubts the claims of Peter and Jesus, what's a Christian to think? Many people today favor some sort of pluralism, the belief that no one religion can or should claim to be normative for all people and superior to others. Pluralism insists on a radically egalitarian perspective that grants parity and equal validity to all religions. For example, a traditional Japanese saying suggests that despite their outward differences, all religions connect with the same divine reality. Quote, although the paths to the summit may differ, from the top one sees the same moon. End quote. Or in the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, we read where Lord Krishna proclaims, quote, Whatever path men travel is my path. No matter where they walk, it leads to me. End quote. There are two broad types of religious pluralism. There's a soft version which appears in popular culture, the media, entertainment, and everyday conversations with friends, and is epitomized in the rhetorical question we often hear. Don't all religions really teach the same thing? Then there's what I call a hard version among scholars like John Hick, who argues a sophisticated pluralist position in various historical, philosophical, and religious treatments of the subject. Both the popular and scholarly versions of religious pluralism dismiss the words of Peter and Jesus as morally repugnant, intellectually untenable, and as politically disastrous. 
John Hicks speaks for many people when he writes about the traditional Christian views that, quote, only diehards who are blinded by dogmatic spectacles can persist in such a sublime bigotry, end quote. Radical religious pluralism sounds and feels good, and across the years I've always wanted to believe it. But I can't, because I don't think it's true. Instead, I've come to a number of conclusions that, although they don't solve the problem, guide my thinking. Here are nine points. Number one, some re religious views and practices strike me as clearly false, harmful, and even despicable. I'll never grant David Koresh religious parody with Mother Teresa. I don't think that Aztec human sacrifice and Buddhist almsgiving can expect equal allegiance. Hindu widow burning, female infanticide, phallic worship, and the mass suicide of 913 people at Jim Jones's People's Temple in northern Guyana all these strike me as badly wrong. So, pluralism that consistently treats all religions as equally valid comes at the unacceptably high price of endorsing the diabolical as well as the divine, which is a polite way of saying that, in truth, most people don't and should not believe that, quote, all religions are true, end quote. Number two, the claim that all religions teach the same thing is patently false. This is precisely what they do not do. At a general level, one can easily document broad similarities among religions, such as various renditions of the Golden Rule. But when you examine the historical and theological particulars of religions, you discover drastic differences. Judaism, Christianity and Islam, for example, are all famous for their radical monotheism. They all teach that their religion alone is right. But then Shinto and many African traditional religions are polytheistic, Theravada Buddhism is non-theistic, and the scientific materialism of a scholar like Richard Dawkins is atheistic. Two corollaries follow from this simple observation. First, it's patronizing in the extreme to say that all religions teach the same thing. To tell a Baha'i, for example, that her beliefs are really no different than those of a Rastafarian. Second, contradictory religious claims like the one I've just mentioned, and we could list many more, they might all be false, but they can't all be true. Monotheism and poly polytheism, for example, can't both be right. Number three. <clears throat> Pluralism tries to redress this problem of conflicting truth claims in two ways. People like John Hick appeal to agnosticism, saying that the quote, ultimately real, that's capital U, capital R, the ultimately real is unknown and unknowable, quote, forever hidden beyond the scope of human conception, language, or worship, end quote. For Hick, religions are imperfect, 
cultural, relative, and symbolic expressions of the real. <clears throat> but if we apply his criterion to his own religious views of pluralism, how can Hicks stand outside or above the discussion and claim to know the way things really are? Clearly, he does not think his position is just one imperfect position among others. Rather, he thinks that he's right. He wants to persuade us of that, and he even wants to convert us to his opinion. And why does Hick argue that all religions are true? If you're an agnostic about what the real content is, why not argue that they're all false? If the appeal to agnosticism remains consistent, you can't confidently claim to know anything about ultimate religious reality. A second strategy identifies a so-called common essence in all religions, some lowest common denominator in them all. But this tends towards subjective interpretation, it stumbles upon the previous point, and it distorts how adherents understand their own religious traditions. Number four. Christians need not reject everything about other religions. They acknowledge areas of both agreement and disagreement and struggle over the latter. In most areas of human knowledge, when you encounter contradictory views, you don't just throw up your hands and concede that they're both true. No, you study hard, make an informed choice, then remain open to further insight. Notice how this Christian view is far more tolerant and liberal than atheism, which rejects virtually all beliefs of every religion. Number five. The conundrum of relating 10,000 religions to each other is not a Christian problem. It's an equal opportunity nemesis that confronts every religion and every person. So dismissing the Christian approach as wrong-headed, which is one option, doesn't solve the problem or make it disappear. It awaits an alternative view from an atheist, Jew, Muslim, Zoroastrian, or any one of the other 9,995 religions that David Barrett has identified. Nor do we have infinite alternatives. We all operate with limited options. By and large, it seems to me that Christians can do as adequate a job at addressing this thorny issue as believers from other traditions. Number six. I agree with the liberal Jewish writer Michael Kinsley that it's not wrong or intolerant to try to convert other people. If you think that someone is wrong on some issue, it's entirely reasonable to try to change their mind. In an interesting editorial in Time magazine from February, February the 9th, 2001, Kinsley argues, if you don't want to convert, just say no. Christians should vigorously promote and protect the right of every person to hold any faith or no faith at all, and extend to every individual and culture unfailing courtesy and kindness. We should never prohibit, hinder, manipulate, or coerce the beliefs of others. 
But that doesn't mean you cannot conclude that someone's beliefs might be false and consequently try to persuade them of your understanding of what is true. Pluralists like Hick wrongly argue that you can't disagree with a person and still be nice to them. Number seven. A rule of thumb in Bible interpretation is to understand the complex and ambiguous parts of Scripture in light of simple and straightforward passages. For Christians, it's unthinkable that God will treat any person of any time, place, or religion unfairly. We're unqualified optimists when it comes to the character of God. There are many things in the Bible that I don't understand and will never understand, but I have absolute confidence that God will treat every person with perfect love and justice. Job chapter 34, verse 10. Number eight. Instead of discarding what you don't like in Scripture and ending up with a Bible that reflects only your own biases, as did Thomas Jefferson, Christians hold together two broad themes. First, God desires that no person should perish and that every person be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Christ is the atoning sacrifice not only for Christians, but for the entire cosmos, we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, Peter anticipates what he calls the universal restoration of all things. The second theme is that Christ alone is God's ultimate means of salvation, as we've already read in John 14, 6, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. How the universal love of God and the particularity of Jesus fit together is not entirely clear. I tend toward the view of the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who in his book Mere Christianity wrote, quote, Here is another thing that used to puzzle me. Is it not frightfully unfair that this new life in Christ should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and been able to believe in him? But the, but the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangements about the other people are. We do know that no person can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. And finally, number nine. A long time ago, I quit trying to understand everything and admitted the many limitations of my knowledge. St. Augustine advised that we should do our best to seek answers to difficult questions, and having done that, to, quote, rest patiently in unknowing, end quote. At the end of the day, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, such as the many questions surrounding religious pluralism, but it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me, like loving God with my whole heart and loving my neighbor as myself. And now for further reflection. 
Consider the extremes of atheism, in which all religions are thought to be false, and pluralism, in which all religions are thought to be true. Second, what do you make of the proliferation of 10,000 distinct religions? In the Odyssey, for example, Homer declares, all men need the gods. Number three, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the nine-point position that I've outlined? Number four, why do so many people consider it wrong to try to convert others? Number five, what scriptures on this issue are either especially clear or unclear in your opinion? And finally, for a fuller treatment of this important subject, I'd recommend two books. First, my own book entitled Many Gods, Many Lords, Christianity Encounters World Religions, Baker Bookhouse. And then secondly, a wonderful book by Harold Netland, N-E-T-L-A-N-D, with the title Encountering Religious Pluralism. For books this week, I review a book by Bruce Chilton entitled Mary Magdalene, A Biography, New York, Doubleday, 2005, 220 pages. <clears throat> Yaroslav Pelikan once observed the predicament of the believing historian who must scrutinize the biblical text with all the rigor demanded by his discipline but do so in a way that doesn't suppress or undermine vibrant faith. He likened the task to doing brain surgery on your mother. Chilton's effort to elucidate the, the memory of Mary, on the other hand, reads more like reconstructive cosmetic surgery. Chilton admits the paucity of his material that what we know about Mary from the Gospels amounts to no more than quote-unquote scraps. That in itself is not unusual, of course. We know precious little about many figures in the Bible. But if you reject the final form of the text, as Chilton does, and must search beyond and behind the text, then a crucial distinction emerges between reasonable inferences and wild speculation. To his credit, Chilton repeatedly warns about such conjectural reconstructions that are really little more than exercises in wishful thinking, projection, fantasy, and folklore, whether they originate in modern scholarship or in medieval legend. Chilton wants to restore Mary to her privileged position as the most influential woman in the Jesus movement what he calls the Apostle to the Apostles. Specifically, he believes that Mary had a threefold ministry. First, of exorcism. Recall that Jesus healed her of seven demons in Luke chapter 8. Secondly, sacramental anointing. And then thirdly, vision or wisdom as the first witness of the resurrection. As he reads the Gospels in subsequent tradition, though, Men, especially Matthew and Luke, repressed, manipulated, 
marginalized, brutally suppressed, resented, and displaced, all of these are his words, the Magdalene tradition and her ministry. He proposes to recover it for us. But the problem with such salvage operations, as so many people have observed, is that it's almost impossible for the historian not to project his own image onto the sources. Further, the quest to tease out the so-called original Mary from the corrupted sources assumes that the reconstructed original will be more comprehensible to us. But I think that if it were possible to recover the original, it might appear less comprehensible and not more comprehensible. Finally, it's a mystery to me how Chilton can impugn not merely the mistakes he thinks that the Gospel writers made, but even their horribly misogynist motives. If only Chilton had heeded his own advice when he writes, quote, If we want to get at the truth about Mary, we need to examine what we know, not invent what we don't know. And we must refrain from dressing up yesterday's piety as today's revisionism. End quote. At the end of the day, Pelican said, the historian always remains the object rather than the subject in one's encounter with the word of the Bible. Chilton reversed these roles, and because of that, he missed an opportunity to say something good about someone who was truly important. Bruce Chilton, Mary Magdalene, a biography. For film this week, I review a film from the country of Ghana in Africa entitled Emmanuel's Gift from the year 2005. I watched this film because the DVD blurb by Oprah Winfrey, who narrates a good portion of the film, encourages, quote, every parent to take their children to see this movie, end quote. And how many films, after all, have you watched that are set in Ghana? The main character of the film, Emmanuel Yaboa, was born with a deformed leg and suffered all the disadvantages and humiliations you would expect in a third world country. His father deserted the family, then his mother died, but through perseverance of body, mind, and spirit, Emmanuel became a national hero as a champion of the disabled in Ghana. His initial feat was to ride a bike across Ghana on one leg to draw attention to the plight of the disabled. In the rest of the documentary, we follow how this snowballed onto an international stage including visits with Kofi Annan, who was a Ghanaian, Robin Williams, the actor, and even to more remarkable athletic accomplishments. The title of the film, Emmanuel's Gift, involves a double meaning. On the one hand, he had his leg amputated and replaced by a prosthesis at Loma Linda Hospital in California, and so he received a gift. But on the other hand, his incredible story is a gift to all of us. Oprah was right. See this wonderful documentary film about an incredible human being. Emmanuel's Gift.
And finally, for poetry this week, we post a poem by Cardinal John Henry Newman, who lived from 1801 to 1890. The title of the film is The Sign of the Cross. Whene'er across this sinful flesh of mine I draw the holy sign, all good thoughts stir within me and renew their slumbering strength divine. Till there springs up a courage high and true to suffer and to do. And who shall say, but hateful spirits around for their brief hour unbound shudder to see and wail their overthrow, while on far heathen ground some lonely saint hails the fresh odor, though its source he cannot know. The Sign of the Cross by Cardinal John Henry Newman. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 7th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.